ora and welcome. I'm Boris Lamont and you're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. In this episode we're speaking with Catherine Keith from Mount Brown Estates in the Waipata Valley, North Canterbury of New Zealand. Uh, we speak with Catherine about how she came to be there and doing what she's doing and what's been going on recently. So right now let's go have a chat with Catherine. So, um, so hi Catherine. Hi Boris. Thanks for welcome. having me on. Oh, well, welcome. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. W- where did your journey into wine start, and how long ago was it? Yeah, so my journey started at a kitchen table in London, and I've been living there for about eight years or so. And my dad called me and said, "Did I want to buy into a vineyard?" <laughs> and that was. Uh, yeah, the early 2000s, and I'd been living in London, as I said, for about six or eight years, and I think it was a bit of a fantasy for many Kiwis, or at least my age group, that, you know, we'd make enough money to go back to live in New Zealand and retire and run a vineyard, and so my dad just threw the opportunity into my lap, so that's how my journey started, but the true story of Mount Brown Estate story goes back, because it does start with my dad, and it starts in the early 1990s where he actually bought a sheep farm in North Canterbury with the intention of building, planting a vineyard on it and got persuaded to plant apples instead, <laughs> which is a bit random. And yeah. then after about 10 years, decided to give that up and pursue what he'd originally really wanted to do, which was viticulture. And so he then bought into a vineyard in the North Canterbury area and decided after a year or so that that wasn't quite him either, being in a co-op, and he wanted to go out and do it on his own. And that's where he came across in a drive around the Whitebrook area, our, our vineyard, our original vineyard on Mount Brown Road. And it was abandoned and... He decided that that was where he was going to start the next venture. So that's how Mount Brown Estates got started. What did what did put that? Do you know what had put the little seed initially in your dad's mind around viticulture? Viticulture. Yeah, I don't know. Dad's done a lot of things over the years. So he was a chemical engineer by trade, and then he got into more into the fine. Well, he worked for a fiberglass company, a boat building company. Yeah, I, don't, I think it, that it, he got to a point in his life where probably he, like a lot of people who get into viticulture, have probably a little bit of money and a, and he had some time. And that maybe was, yeah, getting into the outdoors was what really appealed to him, I think. I think his, he still does it now. Today I was at the vineyard, at our Weka Gravels vineyard, and he was riding around, he's 76, by the way, and he was riding around on a quad bike. So he still loves being out in the open. He loves the vines. Yeah. yeah, yeah, nice. Okay, and because that would have been quite early days then for not only for wine, but probably even more so for wine and um, and Waipara. Well, if you think about it, if you'd got into it in the early 90s, he would have been one of the first vineyards in, in North Canterbury. But mm. even so, we were still amongst the earlier, earlier round of vineyards in the region. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess my journey started with not so much a love of wine in fact (laughs) my husband said when I floated the idea about buying into the vineyard he said just because you like a glass of wine cake doesn't mean you should buy a vineyard (laughs) and um (laughs) which which I've remembered from time to time 
but it wasn't so much about a love of wine. It was a love of land as well. And the idea of when you're a foreigner, when you're an expat rather, and a long way from home, the idea of owning a piece of your country did really appeal to me. Yeah, so for for us, it's been about the love of the land, I think. But we, yeah. we still do enjoy the odd glass of wine. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah, um, well, there's nothing like owning your own supply, is there? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny because during, obviously, we're just about to come out of lockdown with COVID and we we had a conversation between our family and like my brother's a sheep farmer so we were pretty good for lamb there and could supply the wine so we were confident we'd go through lockdown all right yeah 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 Yeah. yeah. so did you come back to the the very beginnings of planting and um or or had your dad bought some existing vines so the first vineyard mount brown road vineyard was it's an eight hectare site and at that stage when he bought it it was planted in about two hectares of Pinot Noir and it needed a lot of it needed rework because it had been abandoned only not for only for only about a year I think it had been let get overgrown and you can't really do that to a vine they need to be properly mothballed so there was a lot of replanting that went on in there and yes a new plantings and we planted Riesling which we uh, subsequently removed so that was the Mount Brown Road vineyard. And then in 2007, we bought some more land and that was where our white, mainly our whites are planted. So we expanded into Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Gris, Riesling, Syrah in there too, and a bit bizarrely, Tempranillo. And then we've got a third vineyard, we call it Wicker Gravels, which is where I was this morning with Tony. And that's a vineyard that we bought in 2013. 12 that is mainly Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris so all up we've got about 45 hectares of vines. Hmm. You've got them across three sites then is it? Hmm. That's right the Tempranillo I'll come back to the Tempranillo actually because that's kind of a weird variety that we've got we're one of the few Tempranillos one of the few producers in in New Zealand for that matter producing Tempranillo that was done because my father came and visited me and my brand new daughter in London and then we all went on holiday to Spain and he fell in love with Rioja, Red Rioja and went back home and decided to plant Tempranillo (laughs) so that's a that's a little quirky vine and it's been it's been a bit of a crazy vine or a variety in our vineyards you can imagine that a Spanish variety might be a little bit harder to grow in a cool climate like North Canterbury so had some amazing vintages 2011 and 13 and 16 have all been amazing vintages and then some years it's not quite got there and we've just not even been able to bring it into the winery so it's a it's a it's a it's a tough one in North Canterbury but yeah, when it, yeah. yeah when we do it it's it's a brilliant wine yeah. yeah and do you have much of it no it's tiny amounts yeah. about eight ton a year we would produce most of it now actually goes into rosé um, unfortunately just because it's been so inconsistent for us Okay, so you you came back from overseas to something that was uh, up and running to some degree already? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, in the early 2000s were really about getting the vines established. And so there was a focus on verticulture. And I came back, and at that point, I suppose our first commercial production was 2008. And I was living in London, and I sold it almostly there. It was the Pinot Noir. So our sales built slowly, but our our production ramped up quite quickly, as vines do. 
So the 2000s were really about establishing the viticulture side of things. And we built our winery in 2013. That's a bit of a crazy story too, because I was living in Singapore at that point, And my father called me and said, oh, I've just found us a winemaker. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's cool, Dad, but we don't have a winery. And he said, no, no, it's all good. We're going to get it sorted. We'll build a winery. And this was, I think, in December or January. So three or four months ahead of vintage. Yeah. And we employed Frank Manfold. So Frank had been making wine under contract for us at another, at a neighbouring vineyard. And he'd been made redundant as they were scaling back their production. And so Tony offered him a role, which he, which he took on. And he set up our winery in about... I don't know, it must have taken him two months maybe. So that was a bit bonkers. So we built our winery around Frank. uh, And we were kind of vindicated in that decision actually because the first wine he made out of that vintage from 2013 went on to win a trophy in Australia. So we kind of went, oh, yeah, that was the right decision in the end. But it was a bit crazy at the time. that's, um, That's a crazy short amount of time to set up a winery. Yeah, wasn't it? I mean, it was only the red winery, so it's not quite as as crazy as it sounds. But we built we built a building at the same time as well, so that's mm. probably the you'd never do it now. I think things have changed so much with post earthquake and things like that. It's just so much harder to do things like that now. Right. But yeah, yeah. But Frank yeah. managed it, so yeah, yeah. yeah. And and so when did you when did you come back from? So you were. You were working in it from overseas for the first few years? Yeah, that's right. So I was focused on sales. So I was working in London selling our wine there and then moved to Singapore and set up what is still a good business. I've still got good business in both those countries, actually, with both those, they're both importers now. So I came back at the end of 2012, about when we were setting up the, the winery. And... Oh, that's what I was sort of saying about our journey has been viticulture and then it was about making wine and then you realise that actually you've got to find a way to sell it all and that's actually the, that's the hard bit I think and probably we've always I feel like we've learned the hard way every step along the way and uh, certainly sales was no no different it's kind of easy to grow grapes and it's it's, e- it's easy-ish to make wine but yeah selling it can be the tough part yeah, but yeah. we seem to be succeeding in that too. Finally, yeah. yeah. Well, you're you're not the first you're not the first person to tell me that about about what <laughs> that it's the you know the selling the selling bit's the the hard bit. So yeah, so when really. and so when did you end up coming back to coming back to New Zealand from 2012. 2012. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So just yeah. before buying that other piece of piece of land. That's right. So we, that's when we bought the what we call the Wicker Gravels Vineyard with Pinot yeah. Noir and Gris on it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And what's what sort of happened in those sort of seven or seven or so years since you've been back? Obviously bought a couple of pieces, uh, couple of pieces of land. And what what drove those purchases? Was it about you you know seeing that there was somewhere different that you could? Did you plant on those pieces of land? Or were there already existing vines on those bits that you bought? Or both. So in 2007, we planted, it was be a bit of land. Yeah. And 2000, and so that's where all our whites went, and that's our big site with our winery as well. And then 2013, we purchased Wicker Gravels, which is was an established vineyard, so old vines on it. There are a few, uh, in any story, there's always a bit of a backstory, but 
it was partly driven by a need to balance out our portfolio. So we had a lot of whites and not enough red. So that was probably the, one of the key things. And also it's, it's, it's an amazing vineyard. It's a crazy vineyard. It gives us a lot of grief and a lot of joy because it can make some amazing grapes up there. So it's a really hot little site. Uh, Dad describes it as a bit of a hydroponic site because it's so so stony. It's like a it's an old riverbed. Yeah, so it's a it's a cool little site. And actually, the, I've just this year I've purchased for us what will become our cellar door. So there's there's an evolution in our business still, which is to take us into the tourist market and have a cellar door. Yeah, nice, nice. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose you know that's always exciting, is it to have that opportunity to connect directly with your the consumer yeah I think I think that's I think people fall in love with a, a brand often as part of that experience I know I've had some really personally had some really fun uh, times visiting wineries and until recently I would have said there was a huge growth potential <laughs> in that market and I'd like to think that that we're just going to experience a blip and that it quickly will rebound and so we will we will at least have domestic tourists I'm hoping that will start to come through our our regions again yeah yeah absolutely and and I totally agree with you about the experience of being at a a winery and hearing the story and and being there and seeing the vines and seeing the land that when you then go to to drink what what you might have purchased later on all all those memories are brought back yeah Um, you get transported back don't you yeah, and it just adds to that whole <clears throat> lovely depth of the experience of, you know, drinking the wine and appreciating it and, and thinking about what you were told and, you know, what you can taste in the wine as well. Yeah, nothing like yeah. sitting amongst a vine, amongst the vines and having a glass of that wine. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and it's about the, um, the, the wine reflecting the place, isn't it, in the terroir and... Yeah. So, anything else along the way in those in those in the years since since when you came back? I suppose you, did you plant some other vines, or did that bring in some other varietals that you didn't have? I think you sort of touched on that. It helped you to expand your range a little bit. With oh uh, yeah. So we also in that time we pulled up riesling. We had a lot of riesling plantings, and so we replaced some riesling with chardonnay and syrah. And the Chardonnay is my fault. I say my fault because it's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful wine and I think Wiper is well suited to it, but it's a very early ripening wine variety. So it, it causes a few extra nights of frost fighting, it would be fair to say. This year it feels like we've gone and become a bit vindicated with the planting of it because um, I think we've made some really beautiful Chardonnay. So that's super exciting. But uh, yeah, it's a tough it's a tough variety. We did put it in under the frost fans to try to protect it, but it's a tricky one. And the Syrah, Syrah is an interesting one because a cool climate Syrah can be very beautiful, but again, tough one to ripen sometimes. So, so that's what we've done in terms of planting. In fact, I've I've found it really interesting the idea that for me, early on in our business, I felt like we had to have a lot of varieties to become a proper vineyard. <laughs> That makes sense. That we had to have a couple of reds, and you had to do Chardonnay, and you had to, you had to do everything to to become to be a real vineyard. Mm-hmm. And I've since changed my thinking on it a little, and I kind of wonder if that's where the future of New Zealand's vineyards will head. Is that as we know the land and its abilities and its capabilities over time, we will work out what varieties do really well in each spot. 
in the same way that the Europeans have had a lot of time to work out what goes well where, I think we'll get to that point too. So you might say, why on earth did someone plant Tempranillo in North Canterbury, except because they went to Rioja? <laughs> yeah. And we, but we'll learn, we'll learn about what our land's capable of. And for me, at the moment, I think Pinot Gris is our star variety. The land right. that I was just talking about that we that we bought for our cellar door is about five hectares. So obviously, that's um, not going to be just a cellar door and it, we will plant it in Pinot Gris because I'm so confident of the region's ability to produce awesome Gris. Right. So does does that make you think then that you might replace some of the variety you've got and focus on some of the ones that you think are more exceptional? Yeah, not in the short term. It's mm. really expensive to replant because you've lost all that. You wait for such a long time for a vine to be productive so there's so much investment that's gone into that vine that you really do want to see if you can make some money from it. So I don't think we'll be replanting anything soon. And Riesling's been a success story for us. We've won a few trophies with it now. And so actually we've got a shortage of Riesling this year for the first time ever because <laughs> our sales have done so well. Do I look yeah. back and think, oh, we probably shouldn't have pulled out all that Riesling? Yeah, I do think that now. But at the time, at the time you make the decision that's right for your business and – so no, it won't go on a massive replanting program. But and it we'll, and it's that balance, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, it is a business in in the end. And just talking with Philippa from Domain Rewa, you know, about Riesling in particular, you know, whether that's going to see a little bit of a a resurgence. You know, we sort of had the the spike with Chardonnay, and then it yeah. sort of lost favour, and now and now it's sort of coming back in a different form because that's what the market, what people are liking to drink. And yeah, I mean, it is it is always a little bit of a balance, isn't it, between what you'd like to produce, what you think might do well, but also what people might buy. Absolutely, because there's no there's no point in producing an amazing riesling and just stockpiling it. I still have to be able to sell it. But yeah, riesling. Yeah. That you say about riesling making a comeback, because I can remember in the early 2000s people talking about how riesling will will come make a comeback, and it's never quite happened. And in fact, it's been a source of frustration for me that in 2016 we made a great Riesling, uh, Frank made a great Riesling, and it won a trophy, but we had made the decision at the point of harvest not to bring all the Riesling in because we were trying to make space for other people's wine. And so we left about half our crop out there, and then the wine went on and won a trophy. And I just remember thinking, oh, all that wine that we didn't bring in. So yeah. you're, always, you're right that you're always having to balance that business decision against making a great wine it's always a tough thing that you have to weigh up yeah 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 how would it seem to you or appear to you that the wines have developed over the over the years and are frank still with you making the wine yeah we're super lucky so we've got we've got such an amazing loyal family of staff so will has been with us since 2007 he was part of the team that planted our vineyard at Lime Loader and then Andrew we think we can't quite remember he's our vineyard manager and he started in about 2009 or 10 and then Frank came in in 2013 early 2013 so yeah Frank's still there we're you were super lucky to have such a great great loyal team you know how would you describe your wine you know do you think when you drink it you can taste Mount Brown and what is it do you think about? I definitely can with the salve. 
So that's it. And that's so interesting because to me, a lot of salves taste and smell the same, but I can smell a salve and say, oh, I know that's ours. Yes. So our wine has evolved. Our winemaking style has evolved and settled into a certain style. So one of the things that we've really aimed for is consistency in style. We made a bit of a direction change with our Riesling. We were tending to be on the drier side around 10 grams say or off just off dry and we've gone it more into the medium weighted uh, Rieslings but we've settled with that since 2016 and our Gris we so that's one of the lovely things about having a winemaker that stayed with us all that time is that we can settle into some great consistency so people don't see vintage variation and don't feel threatened by a change in vintage. The one wine I think that is super frustrating for me is Pinot Noir and it's very difficult to achieve consistency in that so we uh, and it's just a seems so much more susceptible to the climate than a Gris for example or a Sav so achieving consistency there is very very difficult. Is that okay for you for yourself you sort of mentioned that it can be challenging for consumers to get vintage variation. But for yourself, do you sort of appreciate that the change from year to year and how it displays itself? Or is is it is it just a frustration that it does? Yeah, probably a little bit more of the, the frustration end, I think, right. because, yeah. you know, you might, like I look at our 2016 Pinot Noir, which was stunning, 17 was pretty solid and then in 18 we didn't even manage to make a reserve because the we didn't feel the quality was there and then 19 we had an amazing amazing vintage and the reserve and the Mount Brown Estates Pinot Noir are amazing but we suffered with frost and so our (laughs) our crops way down so wouldn't it be lovely to have a, a vintage where you get good volume and good good crop at the same time, yeah. um, good sorry, good great quality and great volume at the same time. And I think we might have achieved that with 2020, actually, but it's a bit of a one-off. So, I, yeah, yeah Pinot, we've got to crack the Pinot and get work on that, getting that consistent, I think. But like I said, it's so, it's so open to the vagaries of the climate, Pinot Noir. So you've mentioned that you've got the cellar door as a new thing for you. Yeah. Is anything... A project, (laughs) work in progress, yeah. Anything else coming up for you? Any other varietals or things you're thinking of or Um, anything else you've seen around the region even that has taken your eyes, someone else might be doing? or. um, For us this year, we hit a milestone where for the first time ever we've made all our own grapes into wine and a lot of that will be bottled under our own brands. So for me, the next step in our business, not, but not all of it, some of it will be sold as bulk to, uh, into other people's, and they'll go down, un, out under other people's labels. And I'd like to see us get to a point where all of our wine is under our own brands. So, but to just to have no great sales has been a, a massive milestone to hit this year in 2020 yeah. next step is to have it all and all go out under our own brand and to build a lovely cellar door yeah, yeah nice nice yeah. very good and so we finish on the question if you could have any glass of wine with anyone anywhere at any time who and where and what and when would that be Ah, oh, so i had so much fun with this question because my initial reaction was that i should be trying to do something a bit more intellectual and perhaps say Oscar Wilde or something and then I thought I'd quite like to have a glass of wine with perhaps my granddaughter or great-granddaughter and you know on one of our vineyards maybe open a 2020 vintage with her but then 
I think right now the honest answer is that I'd really like to have a glass of wine with our team. So we're at the end of harvest and normally what we would do is all then get together and try some of the wine that's in tank or in barrel if it's been pressed yet and then go out and share some old vintages of our wine and have a meal together and we can't do that at the moment so that's who I would really right now like to have a glass of wine with and once we are out of COVID lockdown and into level two maybe we'll be able to do that. Yeah nice well it's certainly those things that you miss isn't it just being able to be with be with people and share things. Yeah and it's such a ritual I think of harvest that mm. we, you, everyone works so super hard and it's also the the you know it's the effort that goes into getting us there it's a whole year's work that we're celebrating not just three or four weeks or six weeks of hard work in the winery it's it's a whole year of work in the vineyard that we're celebrating and so to not be able to do that with everyone feels quite hard right now but I, at least I think we're in a privileged position that we were allowed to carry on working and bring it in yeah yes yeah, yeah. We're, all, we're all very grateful for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah shortage, of, um, shortage of wine in the country would be dire, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it would make everything much more difficult. Yes, that's yeah. right. I would, um, thanks, Catherine. Thanks for taking the time. Appreciate that. And all the very best with what's coming up in the cellar door. Yeah, we look forward to trying the 2020. Oh, well, thanks, Boris. It's been lots of fun. We've been speaking with Catherine Keith from Mount Brown Wines in Waipara Valley in North Canterbury, New Zealand. You can find them at Mount Brown, or one word, m-o-u-n-t-brown.co.nz. Um, have a listen to some of the other great New Zealand wine podcasts too. We talk with others involved in the wine industry here in New Zealand. And also check out podcast.nz for some great New Zealand podcasts on a range of other topics, including climate and business. So thanks for listening in. We do appreciate your company and we look forward to being with you again very shortly. Hey, Kona mai. Bye for now.